Hello, 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 and welcome back to the 4-H podcast. My name is Laura, and I'm the manager of communications here at 4-H Ontario. And today I'm going to take you on a throwback, a throwback all the way to December of 1994. This is when the book Head, Hearts, Hands, Health, A History of 4-H in Ontario was released by the Ontario 4-H Council. This book touches on 80 years of excellence, and today I'm going to share with you some pages from the chapter Conversations with Carm, Carm Hamilton and the Living Archives. For those of you who don't know, Carm Hamilton is a 4-H legacy. He is a longtime champion for the development of rural communities and a mentor to rural youth in Ontario. He worked as a longtime public servant of the then-named Ontario Department of Agriculture in several positions responsible for 4-H including Supervisor of Youth, overseeing the 4-H Agricultural Club program from 1966 to 1976. During this time overseeing the 4-H program in Ontario, CARM was instrumental in the growth and evolution of the 4-H program, supporting 4-H's transition from a focus on projects to today's focus on the personal development of the individual 4-H member. In 1967, Carm received the Canadian Centennial Medal and was a recipient of the Queen Elizabeth Golden Jubilee Medal in 2002. Most recently, in 2020, he was named one of the honorary members of 4-H Canada, a distinction bestowed upon individuals whose dedication and passionate contributions have advanced the 4-H movement in Canada. We hope you enjoy Conversations with Carm, Carm Hamilton and the Living Archives. Welcome to 4-H for You, where we hope to inspire you to use your head, heart, hands, and health to best serve yourself and others each and every day. Conversations with CARM, CARM Hamilton and the Living Archives. In the winter and early spring of 1994, CARM Hamilton traveled around the province of Ontario armed with a tape recorder and a deep lifelong interest in 4-H. His job, as he saw it, was to capture an audio tape the recollections and concerns of a cast of people who had been instrumental in making, shaping, and keeping the 4-H program alive. That list of individuals includes those who had been there in the early days as members or, as in the case of Miss Jean Scott, as staff supervisors in the movement. Their recollections, although not always reliable when measured against the requirements of hard and fast historical fact, provide an anecdotal background as to what it was like to be involved with 4-H as it evolved from the early days until now. So between the click and whirs, pops and pauses of limited technology and cheap cassettes, and between the ticking and gonging of clocks, the ringing of phones, and the call of the door, these living archives took shape. That auditory atmosphere is part of the homely charm of remembering. These conversations, as they were recorded, reflect the affection of nostalgia, the enthusiasm of experience, and a deep and abiding concern for the future of the program on the part of people who clearly care that the greatest legacy that any organization can leave is that which remains for it to offer for the next generation. As any farmer knows, the land of the father is also the soil of the son. Rather than standing as a reliable historical record, these remembrances form a story informed by the feeling of family. 4-H is a place where it is safe to grow, to take the risks that help us learn, to move ahead, respecting the past, experiencing the present, and ensuring a dreamed-of future where others will look back and remember, as these few did, 
and knowing the universe is unfolding as it should. Please note, the order of the interviews in this section, with the notable exception of the first interview, are not necessarily in a chronological order based on their interviewees' years of involvement. There is also no corresponding relationship between the length of the interview as it is related here and the influence of the individuals on the 4-H program. Kids Not Calves Carm Hamilton is immensely qualified to pose the questions that gave rise to the answers recorded on tape over that winter and early spring of 1994. He graduated from OAC in Guelph in 1957 with an honors degree in agricultural science. He served as an assistant ag rep in Middlesex from 1957 to 62, moving to Renfrew to assume the same position there from 1962 to 64. In June of 1964, he went to Toronto and became assistant supervisor of junior extension, and in January of 1966, supervisor of youth extension, a position which he held until January of 1976. In that year, he returned to the ag rep services in Victoria Halliburton, where he remained as ag rep until his retirement in 1992. Mr. Hamilton remembers serving in Renfrew County as assistant ag rep when the young members in Killalau 4-H Calf Club came in from the hills of northwest Renfrew. There were barefoot boys coming in from the backwoods there, and you were glad if their calves had four legs and a tail. Perhaps this is one reason why Mr. Hamilton had always been dedicated to the tenant that 4-H is about kids, not calves. Mr. Hamilton was instrumental in the development of the principles of leadership and in the continuing change in focus on the part of agricultural clubs from project to person. He defines leadership this way. Leadership is the ability to help others achieve the goals they have developed for themselves. He remembers the tenure of his direct involvement with young people as a time of hard work and great fun. There was one occasion when he was almost on the receiving end of a bucket of water intended to be tossed on someone else. This water fight fiasco was an especially ticklish moment from the bucket wielder, since Mr. Hamilton was supervisor at the time. You can well imagine the chargon, fear, and mortification you would feel if you accidentally soaked the boss. Six months after the incident, the fellow on the giving end of the bucket was a successful candidate for a vacant position on staff where Mr. Hamilton was doing the hiring. What would I have done if I had been in fact hit? I don't know. Perhaps I would have been too shocked to do anything. It is the same spirit of fun which makes Carm remember with a twinkle in his eye the chivalry given by himself and others to newlyweds at a staff conference in Guelph. Discretion keeps me from repeating the details herein. Suffice it to say, the bride and groom have a story to tell their grandchildren. On a more serious note, Mr. Hamilton, who tends to hide his light under a bushel, shepherded 4-H as a supervisor through a period of great change. From the years 1968 through 1972, he was instrumental in a review of 4-H, which resulted in an embracing of the less competitive tenants of the homemaking clubs with the within the agricultural clubs. Things have come full circle, says Mr. Hamilton. Forty-odd years ago, he was the recipient of the North Wentworth Women's Institute Scholarship of $100, put against the cost of his attendance at OAC Guelph in the fall of 1953. Mr. Hamilton reminds us that the rules changed just after that to respect eligibility for the WI scholarship to girls. Florence P. Edie was behind that change. Mr. Hamilton says with great respect for the principles of Miss Edie, 
Perhaps with the unification of homemaking and agricultural clubs in 1982, and with the adoption of Miss Edie's principle of cooperation rather than competition, we have truly come full circle, and perhaps Miss Edie wouldn't mind so much endorsing the young boy who was Carm Hamilton. Next segment, Like a Family. Gordon Bennett, former provincial supervisor of 4-H Agricultural Clubs, remembers building birdhouses as a school fair project in 1922 when it was assumed you did not do the work. He recalls when the local ag rep, Bill Merritt, supervised a garden project involving the planting of a bag of potatoes provided for the young boys and girls of the Hamilton Kiwians. That was 1926. He speaks also of Dave Adams, assistant ag rep for Carleton, who organized 4-H clubs on a community rather than on a project basis. Mr. Bennett was involved in a supervisory capacity when Ontario began to use the 4-H emblem. Beside the matter of the emblem being considered too American by some, Mr. Bennett recalls a controversy brewing in Quebec where the 4-Hs did not translate into French. He has mixed feelings about the de-emphasis on competitions. On the one hand, he remembers occasions when the members who placed last in the interprovincial competitions failed to attend the banquet. Naturally, someone has to be last, says Mr. Bennett, but I did not want to be any part of a judging competition that gave rise to such feelings of bitter disappointment. On the other hand, Mr. Bennett says, competition benefited junior activities more than it harmed them, and there is still place for a competition. Mr. Bennett remembers Florence P. Eady as someone who was strict, but whose leadership was tremendous. He recalls the differences between the agriculture and homemaking programs as significant and legitimate. One story he tells about Miss Eady involves an occasion where one of her girls wore a 4-H sweater, and Miss Eady was quite concerned since she didn't perceive that sweater as appropriate apparel. It was too informal for her liking. Mr. Bennett also recalls an occasion when he was attending a leadership council function where tarts were being prepared. When the furnace exploded, someone who was there shouted, Save the tarts! This phrase seemed quite comical until they learned later that a man had been knocked unconscious by the explosion in the furnace room. Some of the people I remember as boys are now dead, he said with a touch of sadness in his voices but they are remembered as part of Gordon Bennett's family of 4-H. Next segment, moving away from a rigid set of rules. Kent Lance, who served in several capacities over the years, remembers exhibiting foals in Waterloo Boys and Girls Clubs. He was assistant ag rep in Middlesex in 1945 with a heavy horse club, later as supervisor of 4-H agricultural clubs, then assistant deputy and deputy minister of OMAF, he saw 4-H through many changes, and he saw those changes as a natural and necessary response to the times. He speaks of the 60s as a period of when things needed to keep pace with the needs of young people in such a way as to perpetuate good programs and improve them to meet the needs and aspirations of members. Of competitions, he says, if instead of a change in focus away from the competition in 1972, 4-H Ag Club's had continued in the track of a straight competition. The program might have died. We wisely moved away from the rigid set of rules and regulations toward a set of guidelines which have a flexibility for variation from club to club. 
Mr. Lance presents both sides of a question with regard to the future expansion and evolution of 4-H, supported by certain voices in the program, when he says of a light horse club, This isn't agriculture. This is just urban people living in the country. This is both true and a challenge to respond at the same time. If there were a better program, concludes Mr. Lance, it would be there now. Next segment. Your job is where you are. Art Bennett, who said of himself, your job is where you are, was an assistant ag rep before he became the first supervisor of both 4-H and junior farmer programs, and later the director of extension branch. He fondly remembers himself as a 12-year-old boy showing his first bull calf at a school fair when the halter broke, or as a member of the full club placing seventh in his class. He is proud of the competition tradition that once inspired the 4-H member of yesterday to be the livestock judge of tomorrow. Another competition he speaks of with particular enthusiasm is the Queen's Guinness. Great, he says. It brings people together from across the province and brings about good feelings on the part of young people. Rural people have an advantage over urban, he says, praising the giving of reasons and public speaking that form of a part of the 4-H experience. They learn to express themselves and to reason. Next segment, trains, subways, and elevators. As a girl, Rosemary Clark was a member of six 4-H clubs, including a garden club, then went on to become supervisor of county and district home economics from 1963 to 1971. In that year, she moved to the University of Guelph, where she was involved in alumni affairs. Sometimes described as Jean Scott's right hand, she was in charge of the training program for home economics. In that year, she moved to the University of Guelph, where she was involved in alumni affairs. Sometimes described as Jean Scott's right hand, she was in charge of the training program for home economists, who would take up the responsibility of running the 4-H homemaking program in the counties and districts across the province. Rosemary recalls the fact that those local home economists were dedicated women, fulfilling very demanding positions which required a great deal of evening and weekend work. As a result, there was a high turnover of personnel. The average stay of a local home economist was two years with at least five to eight new people to train each year in the 35 positions across the province. The forge experience of each of these women was a great preparation for future careers in teaching and business. Many of them went on to become prominent professionals in their respective communities. As for the 4-H members, Rosemary recalls that the girls' conference was one outstanding highlight in the 4-H year. The young delegates listened to speakers, participated in physical education and music programs, and attended a formal banquet. They learned a great deal about etiquette, manners, and personal development at those conferences. Many delegates later went on to attend McDonald Institute at the University of Guelph. Attendance at Class A fairs was another highlight of the 4-H homemaking program. Besides the obvious benefits of participating in the judging of projects and the educational tours, simply being in a city like Toronto or Ottawa had obvious impact. Some of the girls had never ridden on a train, nor had been past the second floor in a building, let alone ride on an elevator to the 56th floor or taken in a journey in a subway. Hijinks of the girls and residents, or tardiness at the fairs, or staying up and being noisy past curfew may have been a nuisance for the chaperones, but it was always great fun for the girls. Rosemary remembers three of the early leaders in the homemaking program. Florence P. Eady was a strong-willed, well-respected leader, sometimes stamping her foot and giving everyone a piece of her mind. 
Helen McKercher was particularly persuasive when it came to getting money for the program. She was able to put together an effective package, what made it impossible to refuse funds. Jean Scott was the most supportive of the local leaders. One of the great strengths of the program was the quality and variety of the project books for leaders. In the beginning, there were six to eight projects, and by 1971, there were 26 or 28 projects. The girls were given a chance to vote on three options, and the choice was always very democratic. It was always impossible for a member to complete as many as 12 projects in six years. The project books for leaders were always up to date, well written, easy to follow, thoroughly researched, and tested. The ministry specialists who created them tested them out on leaders before they were finalized. They were the envy even of the 4-H agricultural program. One of the more colorful projects involved making fruit soup. This fruit soup was strawberry rhubarb soup. It was really soup. After the girls overcame their initial resistance to the idea of fruit soup, they really did enjoy it. The idea of many of the projects was to influence the girls and even encourage their families to add variety to their lives. The nutrition projects, such as Meat in the Menu, were designed to increase meat consumption and add variety of quality of presentation to rural meals. The nutrition projects, such as Meat in the Menu, were designed to increase meat consumption and add variety and quality of presentation to rural meals. The garden projects were meant to make the participants and their families think of vegetables beyond peas and carrots. They even introduced the radical idea that people might eat raw vegetables. These projects did a great deal to develop and introduce into the diet many vegetables which people take for granted today. Next segment, a network of people committed to a good program. Lorraine Holding's career in the ministry began in 1971 with her appointment as county home economist in Stormont, Dundas, and Glengarry. From there, she went to assume a similar position in Peel and Halton, where she served for three years until she assumed the role of regional supervisor in 1977. In 1980, she became assistant director of Home Economics Branch until the introduction of ROS in 1983, when she became manager of program and project development. And in the spring of 1992, she became manager of volunteer resources. Over this time, her involvement with 4-H, and especially with homemaking clubs, has been varied and interesting. She sees the interaction with members and leaders as the most rewarding aspects of her job. She is most enthused about the keenness of interest and the growth and development of skills and abilities of young people. Like everyone else in 4-H, she cites the friendships between people as one of the major benefits of involvement with the program. As for her own contribution, she remembers the introduction of kiwi fruit as an important contribution to the taste buds of 4-H. As for her own contribution, she remembers the introduction of kiwi fruit as an important contribution to the taste buds of Ontario 4-H leaders and members. She was there when the 4-H programs amalgamated, and she remembers it as a time when the agricultural clubs benefited from the well-organized leadership training and the coordinated updating of projects in the homemaking program. It was also a time of special challenge when some of the sponsors had to be persuaded of the need for change. Perhaps the greatest benefit of unification resulted from the broadening of the network of people committed to what was a good program. With the amalgamation of the two programs in Ontario and with the establishment of the 4-H Council, 4-H Ontario was being prepared to move into the future. Ontario 4-H had been able to take advantage of the best ideas from across the country. 
The cooperative involvement of government and volunteers has been a benefit to the program. Next segment, One National Organization. James D. Moore, former manager of the Canadian Council on 4-H Clubs, is a methodical speaker who addresses the changes in 4-H in a very logical manner. The project, he says, went from a time when every swine club member had a pig to the current reorganization to a multi-project program. Of leadership, he says, in the early days, the leader was isolated. Now leadership is organized on a local and provincial basis based on enthusiasm and encouragement. Competitions, he says, had limitations and disadvantages. We've replaced them with conferences and keep competitions on a local level. As for the name 4-H, I was named in Saskatchewan as a one-man committee. After a year, I brought forward one recommendation, that we adopt the name 4-H. After all, we accepted the name Boy Scouts as Canadian. After three years of discussion, we accepted what had already been in use in Manitoba for a year, and now Americans are impressed by, and perhaps envious, of Canada's program because we have one national organization. Given the clarity of his thought, it seemed little wonder what James D. Moore played a prominent role in establishing both the Canadian 4-H Council and the Canadian 4-H Foundation. Next segment. Undirected Enthusiasm Jerry Chamberlain, Assistant Supervisor of 4-H from 1966 to 1968 during the years known for the Challenge of Abundance, remembers the focus and highlight of the program began to fall mostly on 4-H and its involvement with young people. And, he remembers, as do others, that many of the young people who presented the greatest challenge were the very ones who would become the leaders of tomorrow. He refers to the difficulty presented by these young 4-Hers as undirected enthusiasm. He reflects on the success of 4-H leadership and speaks highly of those in leadership positions who can interact, listen, observe, reflect, and respect each other's views. Next segment, Pioneers of Change. Norris Hogue, now Assistant Deputy Minister of Agriculture, was Assistant Supervisor of Youth Expansion from 1968 to 1973. That means that he was directly involved in 4-H agricultural clubs at a time of great transition. He calls it the watershed years. It was an era when the agricultural clubs were changing their focus from competition and the teaching of agricultural principles to a focus on the development and growth of young people. His tenure saw the demise of inner club judging competitions being replaced by eight regional 4-H conferences for 15-year-old members held at colleges and universities across the province. He was there when the rise in emphasis on leadership training for 4-H members occurred. He was reading psychology texts at the time, which made him aware that different age groups have different interests, and he felt that the 4-H program needed to evolve and adapt to that reality. Mr. Hoke also speaks of an incredibly sophisticated client base, which was making demands on 4-H that 4-H needed to serve. In the early years, the school fairs were established to help develop young people. In the intervening years, 4-H emphasized skills, knowledge, and competition. In the 70s, we changed the focus to the development of leadership and growth of the member. In the 90s, with the establishment of the Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs, it seemed we have come full circle. The Queen's Guinness was an example of the glorification and glamorization of the competition. There are valid arguments on both sides with relation to the value of competition, but the real issue is whether or not the proper skills are being acquired, 
and whether or not the program and its competitions are in the interest of young people, and as in the case of showing beef steers, is the, in the best interest of the industry in the long term. Another issue that arose during Mr. Hogue's tenure came out of the desire on the part of the ministry to give greater power to volunteers. The ministry had become paternalistic. We wanted to give the program back to the people. Some people saw this as backing out of our responsibilities. We saw it as a matter of returning ownership. We were concerned that our role should be that of facilitator. Rather than doing for others, we were interested in helping people help themselves. When people realized what our true motivation was, and that we could in fact be trusted, and that we had no hidden agenda, it became clear that what we were doing was in everyone's best interest. The provincial leadership conferences were particularly fun times because people showed themselves in a new light. Personalities came out, and people sang more beautifully than we realized they could. One year, the homemaking and agricultural clubs had their girls' conference and leadership week in the same week on Guelph campus, and they were even housed in the same dormitory. Some home economists were angry with us then, and some still may be, because they thought we had planned it that way. Of course, it was purely coincidental. We had some joint activities, and the members may even have had some social interchanges that weren't part of the plan. In those days, adults were seen as having a moral responsibility for the actions of young people. Now the individual was responsible for his or her own behavior. The two 4-H programs were quite separate. Agricultural clubs were perceived right or wrongly as being mostly for boys, and the homemaking clubs were for girls. For the most part, although there were some girls in agricultural clubs, the membership in those respective programs reflected that perception. On the other hand, the society of the day was beginning to emphasize equality and employment equity. So I think the mixing of those two conferences was for the best. Perhaps 4-H has shown some leadership in helping to make a positive change in the perception of what male and female roles are in society. The changes in both perception and reality have increased the opportunities for both boys and girls. 4-H has been a vehicle for social change, and the 4-H Leadership Conference played a large and important part in helping to shape that change. Next segment, Working as a Team. From October 1970 to September 1972, Lois James was editor of the Junior Farmer and 4-H Quarterly, which would become The Enthusiast. The new title for the magazine arose from a speech by Diane Walker of Middlesex County, who delivered an address on enthusiasm at the Junior Farmer Talent Festival. Lois's husband, Jack James, was summer assistant in 70 and 71. Over the course of their involvement with 4-H, they have seen a change in the image of the program with a de-emphasis on the farm. Perhaps that harkens back to 1968, when the rules stated that a member must live on a farm. Now the image of 4-H focuses on youth, rather than farm youth. A less male-dominated program which emphasizes agriculture rather than farming enlightens the leadership. This change, of course, begs for a redefinition of the word agriculture, which comes from the Latin agricultura, meaning tilling the field. But then, we are in a period of great change, and no community is changing more rapidly than that of the rural community. 4-H must broaden its scope and adapt to the realities of that environment in order to keep its members abreast with the times. Next segment, Never Say No to an Opportunity. A young English major hired on by the Ministry of Agriculture and Food, Monica Alia, remembers her first impressions of her superiors in the department. 
To her, they were stars in the sky, saints and martyrs on a pedestal. Miss Aaliyah, editor of The Enthusiast from 1972 to 76, fondly remembers having written one article which moved a father into tears. As for her 4-H experience, she recalls having given as a reason for placing one pig ahead of another in a judging competition because he had a curlier tail. She won the competition and thereby became the first girl to do so, thus becoming, in her words, a person to be reckoned with. Her motto is, never say no to an opportunity. However, one of her unfulfilled ambitions was to write an article on a woman who wanted to be a farmer. Perhaps one of her successors fulfilled her desire. Next segment, Serving the Field. Assistant Deputy Minister Ken Knox, affectionately described by others as a tall, skinny, fun-loving beanpole of a guy and a brute for going to school, was instrumental in establishing the first 4-H Leaders Conference. He and others, over a two-and-a-half-hour coffee break, hammered out the details. Some coffee break. He uses the phrase, serving the field, the fields don't serve us, as an accidental agricultural pun to establish his philosophy, one that seems shared by all of these men and women. He remembers the visit by 4-H members to the National 4-H Conference in Toronto as a time when many of the young kids were riding in the elevator for the first time, flying for the first time, staying at a hotel for the first time, and visiting Toronto for the first time. It was a time when everyone talked all night, thinking, planning, and working. Work well with the kids because they will be the leaders of the future, he said to his staff. Ken Knox also realizes that in future, we, the government, will not be able to provide 25 secretaries to keep the records. We are in the era of shifting responsibility from the government to the volunteer leaders whose increased autonomy also includes increased responsibility. The time I spent dealing with the families in 4-H involved consoling sad parents seeing their sons and daughters off to university for the first time, and a time for celebrating their children's successes. Sometimes it was both at once. Next segment, Lucky to Work, Eager to Learn. Jane Horner Nee Whitehead, who attended the first regional 4-H conference in 1969, was the intended recipient of a hurled pail of water during a water fight that almost ended up soaking 4-H supervisor Carm Hamilton. She was a summer assistant from 1973 to 1975. She served as editor of The Enthusiast from 1976 to 1977. She was assistant supervisor in 1979 and 1980. She was supervisor of 4-H agricultural clubs in 1981, and then she was manager of youth extension programs in the ROS branch from 1982 to 1985. She remembers the transition years when the program changed from two divisions to one. She also recalls shift in government focus from that of a paternalistic relationship to a partnership. She speaks of this as a rough transition involving conflict between the will of the people on the one hand and the bottom of the purse on the other. In the end, anger was diffused by the fact that everyone was able to present their position to be heard and by the fact that people of a genuine vision and goodwill were committed to envisioning the future and working out the details. Jan speaks of herself as someone who started out feeling lucky to work and eager to learn. She has a reverence for 4-H, a self-effacing notion of her role in government, but she says with a typical zeal, the money that you spend on 4-H comes back to you a hundredfold. New segment, Those Challenging Times of Change. 
Marjorie MacDonald McIntyre Marjorie MacDonald McIntyre, the last supervisor of the homemaking clubs, speaks of getting along, cooperating, and she says with good humor, remembering those challenging times of change is a lot like being pregnant. You forget the bad things. One thing for sure, there were a lot of meetings. Some of the concerns during those years involved opposition to losing the spoons, concerns over awards, leadership training, and the relative uniformity of the homemaking program compared to agricultural clubs. One of the major obstacles she recalls was the homemaking program's objection to the rules and regulations governing agricultural clubs. In the end, the union was made possible because of the credibility resulting from the personalities involved. Next segment, marketing the program. Jack Haggerty was manager of ROS Field Services before he became branch director in 1986. He reminds us that Ontario was the only province in the nation with two major 4-H programs, those being homemaking and agriculture. This brought a range of projects, philosophies, and values that invigorated 4-H and informed one another with the best in each when they came together in 1982. This blending of styles could have occurred earlier in 1968, when 4-H was in review. He says, but the Women's Institute did not feel the time was right. Mr. Haggerty looks to the future as a time for expanding 4-H to involve more non-farm rural people. He perceives the need to market the program and move it into the urban areas as they've done in the United States. This need for change is driven by a declining farm population, a shift in agriculture, a fall-off in funding, and a changing mandate on the part of OMAFRA. Next segment, what to keep and what to cut. Joe O'Neill was a new generation of 4-H leadership that found itself in the position at a time of great change. It is no surprise that the need for change arising in part out of the necessity was seen as a dynamic opportunity to shape a vibrant future, rather than as a response to disappointing declines in membership. Mr. O'Neill found himself in 1983 in a quandary with the amalgamation of the two programs, homemaking and agriculture, considering what to keep and what to cut, what to do with the regard to age of eligibility for members, leader training, and leadership committees. 4-H is an organization dedicated to the principle of democracy, dedicated to go slowly and build a new program by consensus. There are those who might argue that we still don't have one program, says Mr. O'Neill, proudly adding as if it were, by way of reassurance, two-thirds of the members in attendance at camp were girls. This suggests quite strongly where he stands. Lifestyles replacing homemaking is a step in the right direction. It creates a strong impression that things have evolved, and for the better, one might add, completing the thought. Next segment, the future challenge. Richard Hamilton was the acting provincial supervisor of 4-H from May of 1992 to June of 1993. He emphasizes the partnership between the Ontario 4-H Council and government, but more than this, he extols the value of the volunteer leaders. If you find the right leader, he says, you will find the kids. We are in an era of members planning events while the leaders sit back and watch, and he sees this as a good thing. Leadership is about people helping people help themselves. Let the young people struggle, he says. Guide them through, and they will learn and develop what is best in themselves. Final segment, Marketing the Future. 
Kathy Wilson Pinckney became the 4-H program supervisor in 1987, and after a one-year leave, returned as the 4-H program consultant in mid-1993. She is of the generation of 4-H supervisors who must both respond to the changes in the rural environment and sell those responses to a diverse and ever more diversifying rural population. She is on the leading edge of a revolution in the program. This revolution is in part driven by the move to emphasize local and provincial leaders' growing role in the program. This revolution is in part driven by the move to emphasize local and provincial leaders' growing role in the program. She is also part of a carefully constructed plan to help 4-H adapt to a decline in the enrollment, shrinking funding, demographic shifts in rural regions, and the power shift from government as parent to government as partner. This partnership between volunteer leaders and government is charged with shaping the future. The leadership of today's 4-H program find it necessary to speak in the new marketing lingo in these competitive times. Slogans like 4-H is for you champion the new direction because there is a real need. A cursory glance at the chapter on the Ontario 4-H Council will make any reader aware that the energy, talent, goodwill, imagination, and enthusiasm of this generation of 4-H leaders will help to preserve the best of what was, sustain the best of what is, and leave room to develop and introduce the best of what is yet to be. In summary, these conversations remind us all that 4-H experiences involve leghorns roosting in the trees with leaders helping with the pullets, farmers' daughters learning the difference between udders and gutters, seeing young people grow a foot in a year, or catching them smoothing down the oil on their project calves with last year's 4-H sweater, seeing a shy young person become involved in a project, get started and see it through to completion, relating to society, learning to speak, and going from being a young boy or girl in a dairy calf club to a leadership role in the Ontario Milk Marketing Board. To quote one of the people interviewed by Mr. Hamilton in the course of these conversations, did any of it make a difference? The person who posed that question let it trail off unanswered. Speaking as someone who has listened to these interviews, read testimonials from leaders, members, and government officials in the course of writing this book, and speaking as a former 4-H'er, I can answer this question with a resounding yes, and the difference 4-H has made in the lives of all is clear and deep and profound. Thank you for joining us today for that throwback in time. We really hope you enjoyed these conversations with Carm. And if you want to hear more from this book, Head, Heart, Hands, Health, A History in 4-H, just let us know and maybe we can include it on one of our upcoming podcasts. So thank you for joining us today. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and bye for now.